I had I had one of the most amazing experiences uh, at Kumiko in Chicago a few years ago, and I went there. I was up there for a, for a, the restaurant show, and I went into the restaurant and I was sitting. I was there by myself, and I sat at the bar, and we were having omakase, and and uh, and I was I was sort of at the end, and everybody's chopsticks were set up on the right. And I'm ambidextrous, so sometimes I'll. Um, use my right hand and sometimes I use my left hand and but my chopsticks were set up on the right so I was picking it up with my left hand and I I was eating the food and then I with my left hand and then reset it down on the right second course comes up everything gets reset they reset me on the left nobody says anything nobody makes a thing of it they just notice and I felt tremendous love in that singular moment that they saw me and acted love is active you can talk about it you can you can think it but if you don't do something about it nobody can necessarily really feel it in that moment they saw me and they moved it and i felt love hey everybody welcome to the decoding cocktails podcast i'm your host chris lebeau At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I am Chris Lebeau. Again, uh, I say this often. Today, I've got a really great conversation for you. And the wonderful part is, is like you start having a podcast for a minute and people start reaching out. And however many weeks or months ago it was, I got an email uh, from someone asking if I wanted to interview Daniel Singer who runs the garnish company, Filthy Foods. Now first, the word filthy, that's a, that's a heck of a memorable name right there. And I was like, filthy? I was like, what do, I, what do I think about this? And a question I sometimes ask myself, and the answer is almost always yes, is can I, can I find a way to get excited about garnishes? And so I did my research on Daniel and uh, right around the time that we were preparing to meet up at Tales of the Cocktail, so this was recorded in New Orleans several months ago, Daniel had just released a campaign also called uh, Love is in the Details. And so you'll hear that come up multiple times during that, So uh, and Daniel will kind of go into depth on it. But what is the first part that's very edifying about this conversation is that I was I was I was kind of at the outset I was not all that interested but I was like I'm going to find a way to become interested in this. And beyond getting into wonderful depth about garnishes and mixes, uh talking to Daniel was in a way also very uh therapeutic and interesting for me being a entrepreneur of many many years now I think he's been at Filthy for about 15 years. His outlook about what it takes to be an entrepreneur and what deserves our time and energy and what we need to just forget about um, 
hit me very hard, even right during the middle of our interview. And as I was re-listening to it, getting ready for this, I was, I was like, he's, it's almost like talk therapy. So anyways, uh, a great way to think about filthy uh, foods in a way is the analogy that a lot of people are now more comfortable with with something like fever tree. For a long time, we were just using whatever tonic water. And then fever tree started to say, hey, if 60% or whatever of a gin and tonic is tonic, shouldn't we pay attention to what, what what's in the tonic that we're using? And Daniel is a, uh, a big martini guy. And so one of the things he became obsessed about, and filthy for him, as you'll hear, is all about, you know, uh, filthy is when you, you jump all the way into something. You get filthy in terms of like sweating all the small stuff. He wanted to under, better understand olives because he loves them, and he felt like olives were selling martinis short. And so you're going to get to hear about this, like about the incredible depth of olives that are out there and how commoditized the field is. And so uh, this is the cool part about his work. For example, another thing, and I was very excited about this, that while I can be a fan, um, some of the cherries out on the market, like the Luxardo cherries, the beloved Luxardo cherries, uh, Daniel is very quick to say, if you love whatever you love, please keep on loving it. But he's quick to point out that a cherry like this, uh, why it might not be the perfect, like a Luxardo cherry, might not actually be the perfect complement to something like a Manhattan. They're luscious, they're wonderful, but what does a Manhattan actually want from its cherry? Uh, and so these are some of the things we get into as well. But we also talk um, about beautiful things like in hospitality, uh, it's it's easier to notice and do the broad stroke things, but the real love to Daniel's campaign with bartenders, and there's going to be a link to a number of videos I highly recommend. Chase this campaign all the way to the end. It's worth it. But he says beyond the broad strokes, the real love is in the details, obviously, in the fine lines. You'll also hear him talk about that in a way that hospitality really is not a job. You can certainly do it, but it really is more of a vocation. It's a calling. It's a, it's, you are called to want to take care of other people because that's how you show love. Um, the final thing that I wanted to close out with for this conversation, because it's a great one, because I, and I think this, this sums it up so well in terms of thinking about paying more because you will pay more for Daniel's cherries or olives or his uh, his syrups, his brines. But we are, I think, at a point in time where we are more comfortable right now paying good money for mezcal, tequila, gin, whatever, for good quality spirits. But when it comes to mixtures or even garnishes, um, Daniel says towards the end of our conversation is, give yourself what you think you deserve. And I think... It's interesting where as opposed to going out and buying another bottle of whiskey, going out and buying another gin, whatever, to spend a little bit more money on your vermouth, your olive brine, your olives, your cherries, um, is really interesting in terms of uh, how about we follow through on this drink all the way until the end. Uh, you will find links to Filthy and Daniel in the show notes, uh, but Filthy Food is where you will find them online. Uh, but this is a really wonderful conversation. I can't say thank you to Daniel enough for being just an absolute charming, hilarious person to talk to. Enjoy. 
there are always going to be um, heritage brands, right? There are going to be brands that are multi-generational. There's going to be brands that are, um, you know, passed down uh, from one family member to another. There is heritage, and then there is there is rebellion. There is there is um, David Bowie's New Americans, right? So in a way, the market, as I said to you, they, they ultimately decides. Some people like heritage brands, and some people like rock and roll it's a totally different vibe you feel it innately from a quality standpoint you know we are obsessed with all of those things we do things in a very very unique way at the same time people either feel it or they don't you know i heard this i read this thing the other day and it said you know a bumblebee can't teach a fly that honey tastes better than shit there are bumblebees yes. and there are flies. Yes. And you like what you like. And flavors relative. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It exactly. Is. You know what I mean? So so basically I, I think um I'm I find a huge amount of joy when I see people using filthy because I feel like they care about their guest. They've discovered us however they've discovered us and they really care about the details. And I want them to think of us as their partner in that experience and making their drinks better. I don't know if there's anybody that thinks about the stuff in the way that we do from a partnership standpoint you're right there are companies that have a particular skew or in a particular space or do whatever they do but from a garnish standpoint i think well i know that's where we've been most um conscious of making sure that all areas of the bar within that space that we could cover we covered and they know that we are so maniacal about quality that we that we've got them and they don't have to worry. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think we've just scaled simply like that from me delivering out the back of my wife's car for all of those years and my brother going around New York with backpacks um, all the way to now. The quality is always the same. It's it's as good as it can possibly be and it will always be that way. You can't have a company called Filthy and it not be beautiful and perfect because there's no irony in that. It has to be. Yeah, and I mean, I think you do a decent job teasing this out but yeah i i remember you know when i first bumped into you guys i was like you know speaking of like memorable naming you know you hear a company like filthy and you go like well i know i know what that word means right there that's a and so for you it it was filthy if i understand feels like this extension of you know uh i love the the uh actor and spokesperson mike rowe and he talks about you know getting dirty a little bit Mm. but but for you like filthy is like we're all the way in yeah. on this process yeah, right here. Absolutely. So th- in England, it's sort of pissing down all the time, right? It's constantly raining. Mark's only 10 months younger than me, and then there were twins two and a half years later. So there was four of us under four. So Mark and I were always outside playing, just getting covered in mud and just being so happy. And my mum was always like, look at you, you're bloody filthy, you're bloody filthy. We're just about to go out, you're bloody filthy. So for us, um, that's how we look at life. Like, don't dip your toe in go all in on everything because it's where the joy is. Mm -hmm. So every day I wake up just constantly full of piss and vinegar to try to get the most out of every moment and every exchange Mm -hmm. because that is the speed that I operate at. And I don't want to operate at another speed. I don't want to phone it in. I don't want to have inauthentic exchanges because Oh, we got a flyby. That's some jets. That's amazing. That's Can right, everybody. That's right. Um, 
this America. I love America. <laughs> Honestly, I love America. And um, yeah, so for me, I, I have one speed and now I've found a vehicle which I get to be completely obsessed about something and committed to something fully. And so I'm living my most filthy life. So the, the mad thing is there are going to be people, like I said, with the other example, that get it straight away. They can feel what it is to be filthy. They, they want to be filthy and they celebrate it and they're filthy for life. And there are other people that go, oh, filthy, that sounds a bit... Of a, and, and that's okay. It's a long mm-hmm. journey um, and language is changing all of the time. You know, um, I love language. Uh, and it, but it's the evolution of language means that what meant filthy meant you know a one period of time it doesn't mean that anymore and it will continue to evolve and continue to change and um i'll tell you a funny story actually my 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 dad used to be in business in in england and uh there was this guy called nigel who was an abominable human being for all accounts he was like really awful and whenever he wasn't in the room people would say oh that's nigel he's really nasty they called him nasty nigel (laughs) nasty nigel nasty nigel and he didn't know about it and people stopped giving him business because he was so horrible yeah awful human and then all of a sudden uh somebody told him once you know in a conversation while he was asking why he wasn't getting a business anymore he said i was they said, because you're so nasty, Nigel. You're just such a n- horrible human being. You're not. We call you Nasty Nigel. So he started to print Nasty Nigel on his card. And slowly but surely, he's, he, you know, he started to get his business back and it became a bit of a joke, right? Yeah. So when we were starting Filthy beyond you know, what my mum always used to call us as we were thinking about it, we didn't have any money and we were building the business out, you know, thinking about how we were going to get out there. And we were like, oh, why don't we just call it Filthy? And it would be memorable. And I became... Yeah. It, went from oh that's Daniel from Filthy to being Filthy Daniel and and it just really stuck and I think it's important for anybody out there listening if you're building a a, a brand or trying to um, become part of a community you have to bring the right energy and you have to be memorable mm-hmm. um, there's just so much competition there's so 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 many things that people could engage in so I think being called Filthy at the beginning was Maybe a bit strange for people, but I think over time they've really embraced it and it's kind of memorable to people. I was interested to, one of the things I, I mean, it can exist in the spirits world, but it can mm. exist anywhere, is I find it interesting when people, either I've learned or a producer goes, oh, like this is a commodity flavor, this is a benign, not mm. interesting, and like what would happen if we made this taste? Mm better so what i was interested in is like uh olives you know i I mean as somebody who works in them i feel like they are one of the most polarizing foods Mm. people are either in or out on them and i Mm. I love olives but and i know that there would be calibers but what was it in terms of did you have a and i know you you you're also very quick to kind of talk about that dyslexia has Mm. shaped part of your life so i don't know so. so i don't know if this fits in but where was the trigger for you when suddenly you started realizing that the olives that were being served weren't good quality? Mm. So I guess I'm curious if there was a, a culinary background or what led you to kind of even take note of that in the first place? Yeah, um, I'm a very curious human. Dyslexia um, impacts every part of my life. So I think, um, well, I know as a dyslexic human, the way my brain works is I tend to fixate on the spaces between all the noise. So rather than there being all the big broad strokes that are happening, it's not that I don't process them, I do. But I look at the tiny little details and things. And so 
I was going into bars and restaurants and people were making an incredible effort to give give better quality cocktails, right? It had followed the sort of chef scene where value here in the States used to be big plates and then it came smaller plates, better quality. And so people became much more conscious in cocktails about every ingredient that was going into it. You start to see fresh herbs on the bar, fresh juices behind the bar. People were taking a lot of pride in it. They were educating themselves on it. This sort of mixology movement happened. And I would sit in these bars and restaurants and enjoy cocktails and then see everybody handle this giant gallon of olives in rancid brine and nobody took any pride in it. And so for me, I started to think, why is this so horrific? And then why is it fucking up my martini, which I love, right? I love martinis. And everybody wanted to do something better, but there just wasn't anything available. And you can talk about, just to un understand it, uh, olive is the most highly commoditized fruit in the world, right? Eight million olive trees, six continents, um, thousands and thousands of families. Some have hundreds of thousands of acres, others just 10 their great-grandfather's trees. The oldest olive tree we looked at was 4,000 years old, right? So you, and it still produces fruit. So you, you have this incredible landscape, but 90% of the world's olives go into olive oil. The other 10% is highly commoditized. So commoditizing by, by its nature is you have to process it really quickly so that you can sell it for as cheaply as possible. Mm -hmm. So everybody was using chemicals in the fermentation process. So I'm sitting there in bars and restaurants and watching all of these beautiful things happening with, with fresh herbs and fresh juices and then this other thing. And for me, it just started to really bother me because I, I, really, um, I really deeply care about people. And I would watch people sit and have drinks and they would be given something that I just felt was completely unacceptable. And I, and I, I just thought, why? why is this so horrible? And I started to sort of look at it and it's this massive market, highly commoditized, big gallons, bars wouldn't go through half a jar before it went rancid. If they were making somebody a martini on a Monday, they'd pour olive brine out of the, out of the jar and it would taste completely different on the Friday. When quality is about, or, or guest experience should be about consistency and quality. Mm -hmm. If you can't create consistency and quality, then that's where opportunity lives. Because great brands are consistently quality driven. Sure. Right? So my brother was coming back from Iraq. Uh, he was a documentarian as part of a false recon unit. And I just sort of pitched him the idea of, he was transitioning from being on the front line. And I said, why don't you come and, come and look at olives with me? And we thought it was gonna take us three or four months. But there are 700 varieties of cultivatable olives on the planet. And if we weren't the type of human beings we were, we would probably walk around the olive bar at Whole Foods, picked one and got somebody else to put a label on it. We would have stopped at 60 varieties instead of 230 varieties. But we just kept exploring and kept exploring. And we would meet a family that said, oh, you gotta go and meet this other family. You gotta go and see this tree or you gotta go to this area. And when what we discovered was, because the olive is the same family as a peach or a plum, single stone fruit okay. surrounded by flesh. Mm -hmm. It's the Dupe family. It's one of the only uh, fruit in that family that you can't eat directly from a tree. It doesn't ripen on the tree apart from one island in West Greece, which is called Athios. So otherwise they're like hard little stones. So you have to cure them. Mm -hmm. Everybody cures them using chemicals, sodium hydroxide. So in four days it would um, change the, 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 the makeup of the fruit 
but it would also strip it of everything you love about olive oil. It thickened the skin. It would shut down all the pores of the fruit. So you would have to add all this salt and oil back into it afterwards to reintroduce flavor and texture. So when you would take these oily, salty salad olives that were chemically cured and you put them in a beautiful martini, you'd always get that slick on top. Mm. And we were like, that doesn't look satisfying at all. So would you, and so everybody was going towards twists, right? Because olives were so inconsistent or they would just mess it up. All the people would talk about gins and all these beautiful botanicals. And then you put this sort of, you know, disgusting thing on top of it, right? And why? There's just no love in it. Yeah. So we, um, we ended up, natu- we, we naturally cure all of the olives for four months just with salt and water instead of four days with chemicals. And so to your point, they are polarizing. But what we will find is, I always say to people, people say, I don't like olives. And I say, but do you like olive oil? And they're like, yeah, I love olive oil. And I say, try it. And they go, no, I don't really like olives. And I go, okay, but go and be brave. You can always spit it out if you don't like it. And they try it and they go, hmm, this is really good. This doesn't taste like an olive. And I always say, this is what an olive is supposed to taste like. Right, right. Right? This isn't what, yeah, this is actually what an olive tastes like. Yeah. Yeah, we're just used to tasting like. Highly commoditized. Yeah. Fruit. So, so that's how it started. I think anybody building a business, you have to determine at the beginning, what does success look like? Yeah. Do you want to be good locally, regionally, nationally, or globally? Sure. And then can you scale, spend your money growing without somebody trying to kill you in another market? Mm -hmm. So you can spend your money growing and not fighting. So it was about finding categories and doing things where there wasn't a lot of competition, where we could really add value. And the brand, as you know, was really adopted by the bartending community. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you taught you, I remember kind of as I was getting ready, so this like, you know, with all those varieties of olives, you know, a Mm. two year pilgrimage Mm. into olives. How did you begin that process of discerning down to arrive at what you at present use? Because I'm sure you met, met many that were wonderful, but yeah, how did you kind of how did you kind of make that decision? So again, I think scale is so interesting. I meet a lot of young entrepreneurs or people that are starting out in business, and they have dreams of being global brands, but maybe where they're sourcing stuff from gives them a restriction on how fast or how 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 big they can become because the source doesn't provide enough raw material to ultimately get you to where you need to get to. Mm -hmm. So there was always a consideration around scaling, but at the same time, to your point, was a family in 2008 going to naturally cure olives when we were only going to do four barrels? So then it's really about finding partners, people that really understand early on what you're trying to do and never see you as a small company. They may see you as a young company, but they don't see you as small. And they go, okay, we'll take a shot on you. We will try naturally curing. We think you're insane. Because to your point, there's a whole grading system for olives. And we, there is nobody that does olives. We are to- completely off that scale. We sort all of the olives. Like, Think of the context. Context is always really important. You're not burying our olives in a salad or, or in a, on a pizza, right? It's one perhaps that sits on top of a martini which is gorgeous or on a bloody mary and it's so exposed that if it's not perfect it's gonna disappoint mm-hmm. so the journey really for us was can we find a region that we could really scale in because the ambition was always to be a global brand can we find a family that was kind enough to come on the journey with us when we weren't big enough to, to have any leverage or justify them taking a shot so it's always about kindness and finding kind people. 
and then it was about what does success look like and it we just built it one bar at a time and every time we got a yes we um we we could continue you know and i think well i know for certainty being an entrepreneur is about your own personal pain threshold and then about the pain threshold of the people that love you and even if you're insane and you have a very high pain tolerance it's really about the people around you loving you enough to allow you to be you and know that if you weren't being you then you would not be happy and supporting you in that no matter whether you're eating you know beans out of a tin for or, or pasta for six months that's part of it that's part of the journey that's part of the joy of it it's it's leaning into all of that yeah so we always felt we'd be a global brand but i i heard this thing recently which i i thought was so brilliant which was uh, that usain bolt trains trained for four years to run for nine seconds and that everybody thinks if it doesn't happen within two months that like they don't know what's going on and you know we were talking about the loves and the details project what we did monday night that took 15 years for those two hours sure it took 15 years for that so i think in a way it's really about patience and kindness and just finding joy in all of it because what else is there really you know without it being anyways as a fellow entrepreneur the pain tolerance threshold mm. is so real in terms of the mm. moments when you know because you've been at this for yeah. longer than me and the moments when you're like but i've worked hard enough already mm -hmm. like mm. when is my payoff coming mm -hmm. and it's like i don't know why don't you show up for work tomorrow yeah. <laughs> and we'll see if exactly. it's tomorrow and like it's yeah. but there are days when the when the pain or you know, frustration whatever it's just like but but uh, it is pain though I, I would i will say to you i don't lean in on the negative because it's such a waste of energy mm -hmm. and as an entrepreneur you need every single ounce of it so anything that is negative or is going to um diminish you is a total waste and you should reject it fully and i think of it like a battery right there's negatives and they're positive so the bigger the negative the more i rebel against that and force myself into the positive i'm I'm a big believer that happiness is a little bit like a rainbow, you know, like light has to hit the water at a certain angle and then suddenly everyone's happy. And I just don't subscribe to that. I, I, I subscribe to positivity. Every situation I have, every encounter I have, every moment I have, I choose positive. And then I'm, I'm not reliant on all of these things happening at the same time. I can always choose positive. And it is hard when, um, when you feel uh, the pressure of it but you also have to be a bit in a bit nuts to really just lean into that mm -hmm. to embrace it because it makes you you should feel alive from it yeah right yep that's yeah. it's very important that so while i have other garnish questions since it's come up because it was go for it, mate. We'll yeah yeah no we'll go all over the place. yeah hell yeah uh <laughs> i you know, to your point of like 15 years to get to whatever this was on Monday. So we're, uh, so on Monday you had the launch of your, you know, love is in the details yeah, campaign. And, yeah. um, yeah. Speaking of a handful of videos where I either was like, you know, pounding my fist on the table or once or twice, I was like, am I going to cry watching this short right now? Like, yeah. um, so obviously to the point of like filthy, I think of it maybe a little bit to your martini aspect and while you're you, you're even looking at it in a more granular level it's like yeah. 
you know, with cocktails in general, it's like, oh, people are like, I love a martini and I love Bombay gin. Hmm. And vermouth is kind of like, for, for so long has been like, and whatever the fuck vermouth, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, oh, like, what's the quality of yeah. that, right? The quality of the yeah. ice. And like, you, know, you don't want to fuck up the end game yeah. with, with like the garnish. Yeah, yeah. So clearly it's a nice extension, but how, the love is in the details campaign is clearly just so adjacent. Mm. And the bartenders are who your company has kind of worked to endear itself to and yeah, are, are your sure. spokesperson. But yeah. how, how did the actual campaign itself as yeah. an idea come to yeah. come to fruition. Yeah, I um I feel very fortunate to be part of this community on a on, you know, on a global scale. There's people from all over the world that, that I've had the, the privilege of getting to spend time with and call friends. So there was a, sh- a an innate shift that was happening during the uh, pandemic where the hospitality industry was really suffering. Um, because bars and restaurants and hotels and cruise ships and airlines and everywhere was sort of closed. So I think why I resonate so much with the community is they show love through service. That's their love language, taking care of people. And that's that's where I sit. I'm really bad at receiving gifts, but I love taking care of people. I'm so much better at that. So I just felt that there was a shift happening where all of these people that really give out love should just feel loved and um, I also was conscious that uh, at Tales which is uh, this is my 14th year um, I missed a couple a dear friend of mine passed a, a gentleman called John Lemaire who was a, uh, a wonderful wonderful human and a massive advocate and a, a friend uh, so I just couldn't come I just couldn't be around everybody right and um, but I felt like okay this was the first Tales last year was the first Tales really back how do I let everybody know that I, I love them and that I see them? And, and, and the other part of it was how do I amplify how incredible they are to hospitality people all over the world so they felt part of something bigger when it was tough mm-hmm. and that they could take a little nugget from these incredible people and maybe inform their bar program or give their guests a better experience. So I thought nobody's really celebrating these people that should really be celebrated, mm-hmm. that dedicate their whole life to making sure you're okay. Yeah. So I had this idea and I, I've uh, contacted my friend Josh Wagner and uh, who you, you may recognize from the Don't Postpone Enjoy video and a gentleman called Alex Fazan, who's a dear friend who, who owns Zaddy. Uh, and we sat down and I said, I have a vision for a particular piece where I want to show people that that they're loved and that hospitality people should be seen because they're really taking care of you. And so we rented two hotel rooms and turned one into a green room and one into a, uh, a studio. And I contacted 63 people that I really respect and like and that I thought would be interesting as pairs because, you know, it's funny, storytelling is... The visual medium of storytelling, uh, it's not without complication. So they would feel comfortable as a pair. We created it so it looked like they were sitting at a bar and the audience was almost the perspective of the bartender. And even if somebody wasn't speaking, the audience could watch the person. They're called, it's called the everyman character, right? So 
while somebody was telling their story or really connecting, the audience would basically look to the person next to the storyteller to determine how they should feel about it, right? So, for example, in the Don't Post by Joy one, I was, I'm, just, I'm literally sitting there just listening to Josh and he's telling such a beautiful story and in a way, if the audience don't know how to feel about it, I, the person next to them, me in that case, sure. it really just sort of lets you know how you, you know, in a way, the way you should look at it. So some, somebody can say something horrific and the person next to them could either start crying and you know, oh, this is sad, or they could start laughing and you go, oh, this must be funny. So I wanted to set up where they felt comfortable, put people together who I knew either knew each other really well or I thought they would like each other. Mm-hmm. And then we just created an, an environment where they could really just tell stories. And all we had to do was point the camera at amazing people yep. and just try to capture it and then really protect them in the story with, through the animation and through the editing to make sure that they were really celebrated and that the right things were put out and and that they felt the intention behind the piece, which is really for them to know that they're so loved and, and appreciated. And over a million people have watched the videos all the way through at this point, and they've only been out for 10 days or something, which is incredible, really. It shows how much the world needs that sort of authenticity and, and love. And, and I think that it, it very is reflective of it because, you know, there's a lot of different, it's cool, like the, the different degrees of stories that come out. And so, like, mm. you know, I, I can't tell you if I've seen all of them, but I've seen many of them. And yeah, there's, there's just the different angles that people come at. Mm their thoughts on hospitality or, you know, taking care of themselves or whatever is mm. a, a very, very beautiful. And I remember, because obviously, you know, this is a big industry and people yeah. approach it all different ways. But I remember it was uh, Amanda Gunderson's comment oh, about, yeah. yeah. So like, I mean, I, I, what I think is interesting is, you know, being two and a half years in, we'll say, yeah. I'm working hard to take myself less seriously mm. about the work and to know that at the end of the day, it's about, doing something nice and delicious mm. for yourself and someone else mm. as opposed to having to like point too much rigor. And I love that she's like, listen, don't belabor the fucking drink. She's like, you're here to help that guy get laid. Exactly. And like, and like, it, and to think about like, like yeah. we're here to create joy for people. Yes, exactly. In whatever context exactly. that that is. And like, yeah. and let's not, let's take the drink seriously, but not take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, there was a stage where the drink became really important and people would spend a lot of time making drinks, right? Um, as opposed to looking at the, the person on the other side of the bar and giving them real hospitality. And, you know, there's so many lessons in there. Uh, Colin Appiah talks about hospitality starting at the door. It starts at the door. Mm-hmm. You know, we're even doing an, uh, an event every morning. Oh, you know, we did it for the last few days. And you can feel it, like great bartenders and people behind the bar. As soon as somebody walks into the room, before, way before they get to sit in the seat, way before they ask for a drink, you're sending them love, you're welcoming them into your place. And so there's so many little messages in there. And that was really the hope, that if somebody was interested, somebody in hospitality or somebody not in hospitality, what are the lessons from all of these incredible people? So it's so simple. You know, it's, uh, Simon Ford, right? You, Exactly. His what video. is hospitality? It's it's listening and then acting on what you've just heard, yep. right? Making people feel special. It's not complicated, but the simplest things are often the hardest things to do. Because yeah. they're so often, right? Like, I mean, as a 
person with obviously some level of ego who has his own damn podcast. Uh, I think it's uh, at times like I'm hearing somebody and I'm so interested, honestly, mm. in what they're saying yeah. that I want to jump in and like yeah. build off of it as opposed to like shut your trap, let them finish their thought, damn it, and then you can then you can play because yeah, just your brain works fast. That's all. So you're you're already you're anticipating and sure. then you're you're already there. And, you know. And and so at this point with the campaign, I mean, one, yeah. uh, uh, I mean, for a lot of people out there, you know, a million hits is like that. That's fun and like certainly shows the need for it. But is there because either is okay? Is this a a static thing for filthy, or do you have any thoughts on like will it continue to evolve, or, yeah. or, or what will the campaign do at this yeah. point? Yeah. Well, well, I think first of all, you know, the million hits in a way. If three people had watched it, I wouldn't have given a shit. I would have felt bad. Sure. That. Um, that more people didn't engage with how special these p people were and that didn't see the value in it. Like we talked about earlier, the market decides, right? Mm -hmm. Art, you can't worry about that. Art is about doing the piece of art, committing fully to it, and that should be enough, right? So I, I just wanted more people to see it because I wanted more people to understand who all, all of these great people were because I felt like they need, they should be celebrated and millions of people should know who they are because they're very special but the art was the piece that we created and now we have no control of what happens to it afterwards so in its in, in its piece as a piece all of those people felt tremendous love whether it was in the room when they went in there whether it was the little gift box they got afterwards whether it's the heart on the wall outside the alibi whether it's the lenticular prints whether it's the postcards that they could write to bartenders all around the world, letting them know that they're loved. The postcards were a great touch, by the way. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, I think we just try to think of as much stuff as we can and, and then jump, right? You can prepare as much as you can, then you just gotta let it all go, and you yep. can't worry about it afterwards, right? But the, the piece itself was enough, because they all felt loved, which was really the intention of it. Yeah. And now if other people find value in it, and they share it, and they, and they feel good about it, then that's brilliant. But uh, it's already a success for me. And I think, you know, I was, I was having this conversation and, you know, we're all part of our own trajectories and lives and we can't make too much of like status or whatever, but it's interesting to me, you know, when I think of many of the people in the campaign, you know, mm. you were certainly able to bring in a lot of very renowned people mm. in our industry for that. And people that I don't know mm. in some cases, but people that I look up to mm. Mm. and while I could just reach out directly to Julia Momose, I yeah. was like, but I, I mean, I mean, reading the introduction of her book, mm. it just, uh, it hits. Yeah. It's like to be able to like write her a note mm. casually while I'm mm. drinking a Bloody Mary at the bar, yeah. which was honestly, was phenomenal. Oh, so, uh, thank you. But like to be able to like write her a quick yeah. note yeah. shove it in that mailbox so yeah somebody was like what do i do with this i was like put it in the mailbox duh yeah uh, <laughs> we'll set it out for you but that was uh that, that was it was a very nice i touch. had i had one of the most amazing experiences uh at kumiko in chicago a few years ago and i went there i was up there for for the restaurant show and i went into the restaurant and i was sitting i was there by myself and i sat at the bar and we were having omakasa and and uh and i was I was sort of at the end and everybody's chopsticks were set up on the right and I'm ambidextrous so sometimes I'll 
um, use my right hand, sometimes I use my left hand. And But my chopsticks were set up on the right, so I was picking it up with my left hand, and I, I was eating the food and then I would, with my left hand, and then reset it down on the right. Second course comes up, everything gets reset. They reset me on the left. Nobody says anything. Yep. Nobody makes a thing of it. Yep. They just notice. Yep. And I felt tremendous love in that singular moment yep. that they saw me and acted. Love is active. You yep. can talk about it. You can you can think it. But if you don't do something about it, nobody can necessarily really feel it. In that moment, they saw me and they moved it and I felt love. And, and that, that is hospitality. 100%. Or like it comes up in and I read it in Julia's book, but I think it came up in Masa's discussion. Like, you know, the whole oftentimes Japanese act of like, oh, guest gets up, like put the damn drink in, in the freezer. Yeah, you exactly. Know? And I think it's just these little things that do take time away from you're in service, you're getting, yeah. but like those are the things that uh, I love in a world where there are, you know, people talk about like, do five stars really mean anything anymore? Mm. Like online, because everybody mm. get, just mm. hand them out like candy. Yeah. But that's how you create something where on a scale of five stars, suddenly you're at six. Yes. That people go, I just didn't even know that was possible. No, exactly. And just, and it's, and it's not the big thing. No. It is to where your, yeah. your ethos, yeah. it is these little things where suddenly people go like, someone was watching that. Yeah. It's the details. <laughs> it's a hundred percent the details. Yeah. You know, most people in hospitality are very good at the broad strokes and the great people live in the fine lines mm -hmm. and, and we can feel it, but you also have to be in a place. It, it's, it's a relationship, right? So you go to have a hospitality experience and you commit fully to being there. You notice it. You're not on your phone. You're not doing 50 other things, right? Maybe sometimes you are, but in, maybe in some situations you commit fully to the experience yeah. and they s energy is, it's a, it, it cycles between people in this case. Mm -hmm. So you all have to come. And th that's really about Julia's um, uh, loves in the details uh, vignette. She essentially talks about it being a relationship and, and it goes both ways and we have to have respect for each other in that environment. And you can only notice all of those things if you are there fully committed to being in the present and they can only honor you in a way or you'll only feel it if you're present and they'll only be able to continue to enforce it if they feel like you get it. It's, it is a relationship. It's, it's, a, it's a human exchange. I, you are here and I have to love you and provide value for you and take care of you because that's how I feel like I can show love. Hospitality is a vocation. It's not a job. Hundred percent vocation. You you are you are meant to do it, or you're not meant to do it. And you can learn it, and you can develop it. But there is an innate feeling that you have to, or set of skills that you have to possess, which is I am here to make somebody else's life better. And it's not it's not a submissive thing. It's a respect thing. Mm -hmm. It's a hundred percent a respect thing. So. Yeah, all of those things really matter. There's so, there's so many examples in the stories, and I would really, I would encourage people to go down the rabbit hole and discover all these incredible people. Yeah, and we'll definitely link out to that, and I'll be sure to highlight. I mean, there are many, many that are good, but like the, 
the ones that get my my blood pressure going one way or the other, I'll be sure to certainly yeah, cool. hi- highlight because, yeah, it's um, I'm definitely one of those people who's like just sharing them out. Like you gotta look at this one. You gotta look. Yeah. At this. <laughs> so no, and uh, I think this came up when I was talking with your team in advance. So what I found just eerily interesting. So here at Tales this year, speaking of those moments when I'm like mm. I'm committing to the art and we'll just see what's gonna see what happens. Yeah. I have really come to love this format that I've created mm. here, but I've also loved the idea of what happens when you put, like you, like you did, mm. putting two good friends together, or even yeah. like in this industry, we are talkers and conversers mm. for a living. And what happens when it's there isn't a host and a guest, but mm. it's just two guests? Mm. And so I created... I've launched here this like new like what it, whether it's be a serial or a long term thing we'll see but like I created a new series called So This One Shift and it's designed mm-hmm. to be two bartenders just like what happens after the doors are locked yeah what are they and because they could be bitching about something or they could be like you'll never believe what I yeah mm-hmm. it's like uh, I've had uh, seven groups go so far Th- wonderful three of them never met. And at the end of 30 minutes, I'm like ripping the microphones out of their hand. I'm like, yeah. they're like, we don't want to stop. And it's it's cool to feel them mm. being jazzed about talking whatever it is mm. in the industry about them that they're, it feels edifying to them mm. that they, they get to meet a new peer mm. in that way. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, and there's so much knowledge transfer that can happen, right? When you get people to to just uh, share all of that information and, and also through stories. I think stories are so important. You know, you... Sean Kenyon was a really impactful, uh, he had a really impactful podcast, uh, um, Lovers and Details vignette, and he was just talking about, um, you know, being a, a kid that uh, was chased home from school and, you know, would go to his, his father's bar and uh, see the bartenders just be loved. So he wanted to become a bartender because he wanted to receive love, but actually he f- felt he became a real bartender when he realized that it was about giving love. So, and Josh's story about don't postpone joy, which is so incredible. And we, you know, the pin that you're wearing, we animated obviously the story. And in the, uh, in the story, there's all of these pins that show up on the screen. And then we were like, well, what if we made real ones and gave them to him so that he can continue the, tradition that his father had started so i think it's i think if if you feel love when people notice stuff and they act upon what they see yeah and um that's that's really all we try to do mm-hmm. but the story form and like you said in the when you get people together when they start to tell stories for each other that's when it, where all the richness happens. it is it is yeah um so just for this i mean this, yeah, this, this, it, this could go on for forever this is great um but in the process of as you figure out how to like grow the company yeah. too, you know. So yeah. we started with olives. You've got cherries and margarita mix and bloody. Is there, is it kind of noticing things that you feel like are just still these shitty representations, or yeah. how, how as, as you slowly decide what to do next, mm. how are you kind of deciding what to add on to the product line? It's normally about what feels right, and um, you know, Bloody Mary is a prime example of that. We. We had no intention of going into that space. We we were very happy in the garnish space. More people were using the products. I had a friend that worked at a salsa company about an hour and a half north of Filthy. 
we were chatting and he was saying, like, I'm crushing organic tomatoes. I'm running tomato water down the drains. It's very high in acid. I'm acidifying the Florida water system and I'm getting fined. And I said, well, how much tomato water are you running down the drains every day? And he's like, I don't know, like 15,000 gallons. So I said, well, what else do you put in your salsa? And he's like, fresh horseradish, fresh cilantro. So I went up and saw the process and saw what they were doing. And then it was really about, does Filthy want to be in the Bloody Mary mix space? Because there are hundreds of brands, hundreds and hundreds of brands. But when we really looked at the brands that are the most popular, they were full of preservatives, additives, allergens. You know, like in Worcestershire sauce, there's anchovies. So for people that have fish allergens or, or are vegan, they couldn't have it. They all came in plastic bottles or glass bottles. So it suddenly became really curious to me. Like, could does Filthy want to be in the Bloody Mary space? And can we do it in a completely all-natural way? Fresh ingredients, so it tastes like you just made it from scratch. And as soon as I knew that we could do that, and it could have a shelf life, um, we started to go down this mad rabbit hole. And from the idea to completion, it took five years. Jesus. But n within the year of it being launched, partners like Delta and Carnival and Virgin and Marriott and Great Bars have all embraced it because premium matters. So I think, to answer your question, we will continue to expand where we feel like we're needed or where there's an opportunity to give the guests a better experience. So we always say, like, we make the drinks you love better. So it was always about martinis because they put gin in our baby bottles when we are kids, so I've been smashing martinis since I was like that big, so that was tiny. Um, so it was martinis with the olives and blue cheese olives and olive brine because so many people were pouring the brine to make, you know, yep. dirty martinis and it was terrible. So it was an opportunity. Explosion of American whiskey. There were cherries in the space, but they were made for bakers, not bartenders. So they were very sweet, not necessarily complex in flavor. Mm. So we could create something that was cooked in copper pots, had much more complexity, more delicate in the skin. Um, so we felt there was an opportunity there. So to that end, I mean, to the point of how you feel like you've kind of come at this, a lot of the processes used in higher-end cherries right now they, they started as more of a baking product. Yeah, when you say higher-end cherries, what do you mean? Yeah, so I mean, obviously I'm thinking of yeah. you know, brands like Luxardo uh -huh. and, you know, I mean, Woodford's in the space, they might be sourcing them for all I know, but, yeah. I, but I just think about like, it's not hard to spend $18 on cherries right now. Yeah. And so I guess when I think of higher-end one, I'm thinking of certainly not the, our, everybody's beloved neon red. I had a yeah. sommelier told me the other day that he went out for a, what was a, what he, to him felt like a well-executed Manhattan, you know, great vermouth pour, mm. great whiskey, you know, great glass, neon red, you know, yeah. cherry went in. But yeah, I was thinking more of, of cherries like Luxardo and whatnot. Yeah. And I'm not an expert on them, just, no. just thinking of them as yeah. what, what the standard yeah. is. So, so let's just to talk about red cherries for a second. If I'm going on a cruise ship or I'm by a swimming pool and I'm ordering a pina colada, I want a red cherry with a stem on top. Sure. I want to feel like immediately I'm on vacation. Sure. So I think it's really about context. American whiskey had an explosion. Um, Audrey Saunders at the Pegu Club in 2007 sort of questioned, well, we're having all of these new expressions of whiskey. Do we really want to put a Shirley Temple style cherry on it? So she embraced Luxardo at the time, is my understanding of it, because it was a much better version in her mind than the, than the fluorescent or neon ones. But to your point, when you have generations and generations making a particular product in a certain way, cocktails are relatively new. 
and especially the resurgence of American whiskey cocktails. So I think, well, I know, um, we make everything specifically for cocktails. So there is a complexity, there is a long, tart finish that holds up against spirit-forward American whiskey cocktails. So here at Tails, it's the only garnish ever nominated for an award. So, but the palette is so subjective. I encourage people to try different stuff, whatever it is, and just determine what they like, right. not because they read some review that somebody paid for or right. some <laughs> other fucking bullshit. Just try some stuff, taste it, because your palate's, Shauna says it, your palate's different than mine. Yeah. You know, get whatever you want, but make the decision from a place of being informed, not because you're a fucking sheep. Right. Right? Yep. Because you actually tried some stuff and you were like, I really like this and I really love it. Now, at the beginning, you're going to want to read reviews. You don't know and you're going to want to try some stuff. But don't go around waving a flag if you haven't tried anything else. Yep. Right? You know? Um, and that, and I think, yeah, just be curious in that in that sense. There are lots of different cherries out there. There are lots of different Bloody Mary mixes. There are a lot of margarita mixes. Try some stuff. So there's one which is about the palate, and there's two which is the intangible, which is how the brand itself makes you feel. And there's this thing called Love Marks, which is essentially brands that you love, right? So n low love, low respect is a commodity. That's where garnishes were. A fad is something that has high love but low respect. It's like a fidget spinner. It comes, it goes, everybody wants it, and then you don't want to see it again. So low love, low respect, commodity. High love, low respect, fidget spinner, a fad. Okay, this is where it gets complicated. High respect, low love. So that's like your washing powder. It does what it says on the tin, mm. but if another brand's on... But I have no loyalty. No. To it. I, I respect what this is doing. It's going to do what it says it does. But you have no loyalty. If another brand of washing detergent goes on sale, yep. you're, you're going to buy it. Yep. Love mark. High love high respect my job was to take something that was commoditized low love low respect and become obsessed with making it high love high respect that's the journey that we've been on that's what we do every day hmm. so i don't necessarily have a ton to baseline it against because like i'm okay. not but i'm not a bloody mary person by trade yeah. i thought your mix was Exceptional. So, thank you. But thank you for also talking through, like, um, because, you know, a, a, a heritage brand like Luxardo mm. might have a wonderful process behind making them. But to your point, were they engineered for it in the first place? And also, yeah, to the palate is subjective. You love that in there? Thro throw that damn thing. If that is your love mark. Yeah, throw and that. And it makes you feel good and you like that brand, go for it. Throw that damn thing in there. But if you don't feel anything mm -hmm. from it. Right. And there's a, it's like British Airways and Virgin, right? right. Yeah. Do, do you love, the question is, do you love Luxardo as the example, or do you love being able to show people which status is a part of the human game, mm. or do you just love being able to show people that you've got them? Um, it, it, you know, and so that's, that, that's kind of really the, the question is, are you doing it for the show, or are you doing it because you like it? Yeah, so. I, think, I think it's about evolution as well. I think um, ultimately competitive sets are good because the consumer always wins mm -hmm. if you just have it for in that space as an example for a long time there was one brand and 
I don't think that's a good thing. So competition means that people get better value, they get better more choice, they get things that work well for them. I, I really believe in that. Like I'll do what I do, everybody else will do what they do, and the market will decide. Sure. And that's great. That's healthy, right? Mm-hmm. Everything gets better. When it's just one thing. It's the quality can go down, but you still don't have a choice. Is um, you know, across your product line, I don't know how, if there's a great way to answer this, but for the layperson out there, one tasting, you know, yeah. kind, um, kind of beginning to think about bringing things a little bit to the close. And if there's anything you want to make sure we get in, no, let I don't. me know. But in terms of, you know, tasting is going to be the best way to kind of like understand what you like. But are there any questions? you'd be asking it so you're, you're a consumer and you're standing in an aisle and you're looking at a bunch of olives or cherries mm. or mixes whatever are, are there way are there questions or things you'd be looking for in terms of signals for integrity quality or things that like you might not want to put in your body I, mm. I, are there any guidelines you yeah well I think I think the first thing to say is um, give yourself what you think you deserve so everything matters it really does. You know, you, we know so many people that buy premium spirits, put it in great glassware. They've got the ice, everything's sort of set, mm. but then they throw some salad olive oil or dessert cherry in it. And you think, but you don't need to do that. Like, right. just, just everything should be considered. And I think the second thing is there are brands that grew up in the bars because the bartenders are so conscious of this stuff that if you find brands that are really credible in bars, restaurants, and hotels, that's really where you want to start because those they would not be successful in that space and in that universe. Yeah. Because that, that space is the graveyard to a thousand brands that were full of shit, right? It just is, right? So if you endure and you sustain in an environment that's so highly scrutinized, that's continually evolving, and you're a partner to those people and they love you, and they believe in you because they know they trust you and, the, and respect the quality, then that's probably a great place to start. So what I would always say is go to your favorite bars and restaurants, talk to the bartender, um, ask him the ingredients that go into the drink beyond the spirit, and just learn, be curious. Yeah. And I think that's a brilliant place to start because and bartenders are at all different levels and all different levels of experience, but if you trust that bartender and you love the way that they make the drink, you know what? Just ask them about the ingredients they have. Yeah, and, and, and remember, yeah, for a lot of people, it's like you can fixate on the spirit, but what else is going into the glass? So much stuff. Yes. So much stuff. You know, a cocktail's three parts, right? It's 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 the spirit, it's something sweet, and it's something tart or bitter. So you have to balance that, right? You have yep. to balance the sweet and the tart, and then you have the spirit on top. So everything should be considered to create a great cocktail. The temperature in which it's served at, the ice that you use for dilution. Yep. And you can go all the way down the rabbit hole. But I think, number one, don't worry about judgment. Everybody starts somewhere not knowing everything. And nobody's ever an expert. Everything's constantly evolving. So I would just say, um, don't be afraid to ask questions. And I think a lot of times people don't want to put themselves in a position where they feel like they might be looked at as being stupid or asking silly questions. I say bollocks to all that. Just uh, just ask everything that you think will make you more knowledgeable. So don't worry about asking your bartender a silly question. If they pull a face or they are rude to you, they shouldn't be in hospitality anyway. 
and that's got nothing to do with you. Yeah. But most of the time, the majority of the time, they're going to be incredibly generous and they're going to tell you all about stuff and why they do stuff because they're really there to make sure you have a great time. And if that's important to you, they will give you that information. Yeah. They will share with you about the measures. And so just, just ask. Yeah. They'll be really kind, I'm sure. Daniel, this has been great. Uh, we'll, of course, link out to it, but where do people find Filthy on, on the internet and yeah. all that good stuff, but <laughs> you, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. Um, filthyfood.com. Uh, we have store locators on the site. So let's say you go in and you can just put in your zip code and it'll tell you which store to go to within your area. Okay. Um, if it's not in your favorite store, tell them to bring it in. Um, and I think... Uh, if you really like what we do, then just tell your friends. Yeah. That's really it. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. You bet. This has been great. Really. Yeah, such a pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at decodingcocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktail. Mm-hmm.